0: let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel chapter 8. We'll see how far we get uh, today. I'd like to finish the chapter, but I don't know that we will. Um, How many of you have a New King James Version Bible? Raise your hand. Okay. If you do have a New King James Version Bible, you'll notice there's like a little title above the section that we're going to be looking at this morning. And it says the cost of discipleship. In the in the King James Version Bible, the translators uh, didn't put those uh, helpful titles. Sometimes it can be helpful, and uh, but the New King James Version um, translators did, and and it, it can certainly help us. And when we think about discipleship, you know, it is something that is really important today in in the church. And even in the world, in the world, you see discipleship happening all the time. If you've been to a job, and maybe there's a, a bunch of people who have different skills or abilities, and um, have you ever has your boss ever come to you? And I remember this happened when I worked at uh, uh, Xerox. You know, they they would say, you know, you've got this a uh, real strength in this area, you've got a strength in this area, and so what they would do is they would cross train everybody. They would cross train people in case somebody didn't come in, in case somebody got fired. Um, there was always room for people to, the, the company could move on and all the brain trust wouldn't be leaving the company. <laughs> and, and the world does that. They, they train because they know that anything can happen. And in the kingdom of God, which you and I are a part of, the Lord expects us to do the same uh, for discipleship to occur. And it's one of the things that I believe in America and, and maybe even the church at large in, in the world in some countries, less than others, but discipleship is not something that is happening a lot, um, and it's something that we really need to consider and to think about as we go forward, because we've all have we all have things to to offer, and especially for those of you who are older in the Lord, you've got so much to offer, more than you can possibly imagine, and yet our culture tells you, and, and, they, and they, they tell you this by actions or nonverbal communication, what they say to you oftentimes is, well, you're just too old and you need to go out to the pasture and let the young people come in. But the thing is, is those young people, they need you, and the, the world doesn't think that, and unfortunately... They're wrong. Well, fortunately, they are wrong. (laughs) They're wrong in that idea because the church needs you older saints. And ask the Lord to give you that heart of discipleship. Maybe there is a young person around you, you know, that needs some encouragement, that needs some help. And you know, discipleship is a two-edged sword, isn't it? It takes two to disciple. There has to be a master, somebody who knows something. And, and, and like a blacksmith or a, a silversmith, they, they are the master. They have been the ones that have been sweating doing this thing for years. And now they're getting older and they realize they have to pass this down. They have to pass it down to some other young person who can uh, be under them, an apprentice. And that's really the idea, is a master and apprentice. And who is our master? It's Jesus, right? And we are his apprentice. We are his disciples, And a disciple is a pupil, it's a student. And I want to learn everything I can about Jesus and follow him. And as I do that, I understand that there are also younger people than I am looking at my life. And hopefully I'm being an example to them. Hopefully I'm reaching out to them and being willing, being vulnerable even. Because most older people, they have an attitude. And younger people, they have an attitude as well. The older people are like they think they know it all and I can't teach them anything. They're just stubborn, like mules. And they may be right. <laughs> and then the younger says, oh, I can't learn anything from this old person. They just don't understand what it's like today. They don't understand me and, and, and the world has changed and moved on and, and they, they've got nothing to offer me. And when you have that, that, that break in fellowship, then fellowship or discipleship Breaks down very quickly. But when you've got somebody who is older in the Lord or older in anything, being willing to invest, they got to be willing to, they got to put up with the young buck, don't they? They got to put up with the young person who doesn't see them as valuable. Perhaps initially that young person doesn't see them as being valuable, but as they spend time with them, they're like, wow, they really do know what they're talking about. And yeah, I can really learn a lot from them. And so it takes that older person to have that heart, that attitude, that vulnerability to be willing to be looked down upon initially, uh, have the the character of heart to be willing to uh, let this young person initially, perhaps, in their immaturity, do really silly things. And to be willing to not upbraid them all the time, but stand by them and encourage them as they make their mistakes. And it also takes a young person to get away from their bias of, well, this is an older person and I can't learn anything from them because I am 13 and I know everything, or I'm 15 and I know everything, or I'm 17 and I know everything, and you don't know anything. (laughs) I can say that, you know why? Because I feel that way now. I feel like I know very little. And the more I learn, the more I learn how much I have to learn. Isn't it true? It's true. There's this funny pendulum that happens when you're young. You know, you grow up and you get in your teens and you think you've seen and heard it all and know everything, and then all of a sudden your 20s hit and your knees start to buckle, and then your 30s hit, and then you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, and then you got somebody who actually is willing to invest in you, and now you're like, my gosh, mom and dad, you've become like geniuses. All the things that you told me all these years is coming true, and you're like, Duh. I've been trying to tell you that, but you weren't ready. Isn't that interesting how sometimes we're in seasons, we're just not ready to hear it. And there comes a time in our life when finally we're ready to be discipled. We're willing to hear. But until then, it's like we got plugs in our ears. But it takes two. It takes a master and it takes a disciple. It takes an apprentice. And as Jesus today, as we look at this passage, specifically 18 through I think 22, we may get farther, but that may be all that we cover today because this is a really uh, important topic, like I said, because we need to be about discipling others and find someone to disciple. For those of you who are older, find someone. And you got to be you got to be careful about it too. You know, if if maybe there's a young man who has a father who is checked out and he's he's too busy, you know, in his job and his career, and this poor young teen doesn't have a dad. Then ask his father, "Hey, can I take your son out to lunch? You know, uh, can I take him out for this? Can I, you know?" And then pretty soon, hopefully, the dad will wake up and realize somebody else is raising my son. But that's between you and the Lord. But you know what? Then then there's this wonderful relationship happening. And, and it's important for us to do that. It's important for us to do that. And so let's look at uh, verses 18, 18 down through 22. Jesus is still in Capernaum, which we know is on the western shore of the Galilee. Uh, Capernaum literally means town of comfort or town of Nahum. Nahum the prophet, yes, whom the Old Testament book is named after. We believe he was born in this town. But it's a little fishing town uh, on the uh, western side of the Galilee. And when when you go to Israel, we visit this place. So many things are amazing about this place. And the original synagogue that you read about of Jesus healing and driving out demons and healing a man's withered hand, all of these things... That synagogue is still there. They've unearthed it. You're actually walking on the ground, the very stones, the marble slabs that Jesus walked on in the first century. It's really amazing. And so Jesus is there, and he's living with Peter. And Peter and his wife and his mother-in-law, they're all living in this house right next to the synagogue. It's very close by the synagogue. And so Jesus is there. In uh, Capernaum, and it says, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command, notice, to depart to the other side. And then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my Father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me. And let the dead bury their own. What an interesting thing to say. But one thing I want you to uh, remember is that Matthew's gospel is not a, in a strict chronological order. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, The content that you see in the Gospels is arranged thematically by Matthew, led by the Spirit of God, with the intent of showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And case in point is, notice here in verses 17 and 18, between those two verses, there are about 45 other events in the life of Christ that are in between verses 17 and 18. So we're not talking about a strict chronology here. But I will say this, immediately prior to verse 18, Jesus spoke the kingdom parables contained in Matthew 13. So you might want to put in a little arrow in between verses 17 and 18 and write in the the chapter Matthew 13. Because that's exactly what happened between verses 17 and 18. And the kingdom parables, remember, are those parables where Jesus would set them off by saying something like, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed in his field. And so right between 17, you had the kingdom parables. Now just turn over a few pages to to chapter 13, and I just want to show you something really quick here. Because I like to help you with the, the, the lay of the foundation of this, the chronology of it. Notice what it says in verse 13, or chapter 13, of verse 1 of Matthew. It says, the same day, so just remember that after Jesus, in verses 16 through 17 in, our, in Matthew chapter 8, as soon as he healed all that were in there in in Capernaum at that time, it says, The same day went Jesus out of the house, and he's speaking of Peter's house there in Capernaum, and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship, and he sat there, and the whole multitude stood on the shore, and he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And so Jesus then, now go back with me to to chapter 8 now, Verse 18, because that's exactly, um, so Jesus, in chapter 13, he gets in the boat, he pushes out a little from the shore, he teaches the multitudes the kingdom parables, and then immediately after that, we get verse 18 here in chapter 8. So he's already been ministering to them the kingdom parables, and notice what he says. In verse 18, it says, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. So he was already in the boat. He was ministering to them. He saw the multitudes coming. He taught them. And now he says, now we have to go to the other side. And the other side is on the western shore, or excuse me, the eastern shore. I do know my east from the west, I think. Is it this way, up and down? No. So he went to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee which is really a lake, it's not a sea. But he goes over to there, and then a certain scribe came to him and said, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever.'" you go and a scribe at this time was really more like the bible teachers of the day they were the ones who would look at the scriptures and they would teach it to the people and jesus said to him something really profound he said foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head in other words being a disciple of jesus ought not to be some flippant decision And it certainly ought not to be a decision, one born out of convenience. You know, we don't know the motives of this scribe, of this young man, but his motives weren't right, and we know that because of how Jesus responded to him. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, the animal kingdom, it has a place to lay its head. Birds have nests, foxes have holes. At night, that's where, they re- that's where they go. But Jesus said there were times where he had no place to lay his head. Sometimes it would be out in the open fields, in a mountain somewhere. Maybe a rock was his pillow. But the Lord knew the heart of the scribe, and perhaps the scribe wanted to follow Jesus because of the fame and the, the notoriety of this itinerant preacher. You know, one would... Uh, think that for all that Jesus truly has to offer us as sinners, you'd think that people would be flocking to him and that it would be the best thing going. And the truth of the matter is, he is the best thing going. (laughs) But it requires what? A death to self. It requires the, the Spirit of God taking up residence in our heart. And what does it tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And there's something about our sin nature, this old nature that we were born with, that's so eager, that that is not actually so eager to give up this old nature that's bent on darkness. Because the life and the salvation that Jesus wants to give us really is the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world. It's the greatest gift that could ever be offered. And you would think that people, the whole world would just be flocking to him. But the reason they're not is because of what it tells us in John chapter 3, verse 19. What does it say? It says, And this is the condemnation that the light, speaking of Christ, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because what? Their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And see, this is the biggest hurdle to becoming a believer in Christ. First, acknowledging that we are sinners and then receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's also another hurdle that uh, that, that is a decision that has to be made, and that is Now that I am a believer, do I want to be a disciple of Jesus or not? And you may be saying to yourself, what are you talking about? Yeah. Not every believer is a disciple. And we'll get into that. But Jesus, talking to the scribe. So you know, you... You may want to follow me for certain reasons, but do you understand that I don't even have a place to lay my head? And it really forced the young man, the scribe, to examine his motives, didn't it? But there is a cost to being a disciple of of Jesus. There's a cost involved. The cost of being a disciple of Jesus may get you thrown out of the church that you're currently in. Not here, but there are churches that don't teach Christ and him crucified. Isn't that funny? You'd think that you could go to a church and find all the Bibles open and people and the, the pastor or preacher teaching from the Bible. But today, folks, do you understand that that is a, a, a rare breed? It's getting rarer as time goes on. And people need to hear the word of God. They don't need to hear more politics. They don't need to hear more Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. What they need is this. They need the word of God. It's the only thing that's going to change their life. It changed my life wonderfully changed my life, changed me from a trajectory of doing my own thing. I did it my way. Well, you know what? I was doing, going my way, and the Lord turned me around and put me in the opposite direction, and I had no clue what he was gonna do with my life. And was I afraid? Yes, I was afraid. What Christ would do to me, oh my gosh. If I give my heart to him, he's gonna beat me. He's gonna leave me out in the cold. I'm never gonna eat. I'm not gonna have anything to wear. And, you know, and all these things come into your mind. And it's like, you really think God is, that, is like that? Do you think that that's his motivation? Do you think that's his heart? Being a disciple of Christ may cause you to be excommunicated from your family. Your family even turning against you, who say to you, you've gone too deep and too far with this Jesus thing. You need to give it a break. You need to come back to Mass. Yes. Yes. I can say that because I've spoken to many of you over the years, and you've had family that have turned their back on you, thinking that you've joined some cult because you believe in Christ now and that you have a hunger for the word of God. That is what it's supposed to be about all the time. Wherever you go, I don't care if you go into a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, a Baptist church, a non-denominational church like us, which we've become a denomination, I guess, but... That's the thing. This is what it's all about. If you go to a church and they're not teaching you the Word of God, run out and grab a few people with you. They're wasting, you're wasting your time. Don't go there if they teach you 15-minute sermonettes and then tell the worship team to go another half hour. And that's, that's, that's the diet that you get. Run out of that place if the gospel is not being taught you, if the Bible is not being preached to you. And being a disciple of Christ may even cause you to be beaten or even killed. I've met a young woman um, going back some years now who came here. She was from Iran, and she came over to go to school here in America, and she gets magically and wonderfully saved, and now she can't go back to Iran because her dad disowned her. And her brothers said, don't come back. And I've heard stories of young ladies being beaten and even killed by their own father or their brothers for leaving Islam and serving Jesus Christ. So she still stays here in America. She can't go home anymore. There is a cost to discipleship for her. It was probably not seeing her family ever again. Because as soon as she set set down in Riyadh or wherever it is in uh, in Baghdad or wherever or in uh, wherever that is (laughs) in Iran, once she her plane landed, she was in a run for her life. And yet in America, wonder wonder of wonders, we get to do this so freely. I'm so glad to be an American. I'm so glad to live in this country. Pray for it. But being a disciple, there is a cost. There is a cost. In Exodus chapter 21, it records for us a a situation. And let me just read it to you. You can write the, the, the reference down. In Exodus 21, it says, Now these are the judgments which ye shall set before them, And this is God speaking to Moses to give to the children of Israel. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then he, his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But notice this. But if, he plainly, if the servant plainly says... I love my master, I love my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door, (coughs) excuse me, or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, put a hole in his ear, and he shall serve him forever. Notice the man had the opportunity to be free, but he realized, you know what, I'm freer than anything because all my needs are met here. My master is good to me, and my family is here. I don't want to go out and be free and leave my family here. I, but he says plainly, I love my master. I love what I'm doing. I'm going to stay and serve you forever. And see, that's the idea of a somebody who's being discipled. It's called a bond slave. Somebody who's willing to serve someone else for, for, their, for their reasons, and, and, and they leave self out of it completely. But there is a cost to discipleship, and sometimes that cost is a lack of independence. Being a disciple means being under the authority of someone else, being accountable to someone else. Being a disciple of Jesus is challenging. It's sometimes difficult and fraught with spiritual attack, persecution, and even at times a lack of necessities. And discipleship discipleship is willing to lay, lay down your life, your plans to follow and learn from someone else, a master. And our master is Jesus. But there are many believers, and I've said this before, that are believers, but they're not disciples. And it is possible to be a believer of Christ and yet not be a disciple. And this is typically... Uh, spoken of someone who genuinely gives their heart to Christ, is born again, but they're not fully engaged at all. They've got their salvation or their fire insurance, as some call it, and they go about their merry way doing what they want to do. They may be saved and going to heaven, but they are not disciples. And I have a question. (laughs) Why would I not want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ after all that he has done for me? Why would I not want to be a disciple of his? It's selfish for me to not want to be a disciple. Because I'm basically saying I've got my salvation. I know I'm saved because I I said the prayer and I really believe I'm a sinner. I know that Christ died for my sin. I know he's coming back for me and I believe everything he said and did. But I want to do my own thing now because I've got to make a living after all. So what, what am I really saying then by deciding not to be a disciple of Christ? I just wrote down four things that I, I was thinking, and maybe they'll register with you, but um, at least this, what am I really saying by deciding not to be a disciple of Christ? Maybe one of them is I don't want to be all in for Jesus. I just want to be kind of close, but not really too close My family tells me I shouldn't be so close to Jesus, that I need to give up this Jesus thing, that I need to give up reading the Bible. You're just getting a little too close. You're getting a little wacky. They don't want to be in all for Jesus and even suffer ridicule from their family, friends, or coworkers. Maybe they don't want to be a disciple because they don't approve of God's plans for their life. I want my plan and not his plan. (laughs) I had my plan. When I got saved, I had my own plan. I was going to be a classical concert guitarist. That's, that was my goal in life. All my schooling had brought me to that point, that pinnacle. And then the Lord gets a hold of me, and all of a sudden, my whole life begins to change. And all of a sudden, I realize I'm on the wrong path. And I didn't know it at the time. And he gave me new desires that I, couldn't, that I didn't have before. And all of a sudden, I find myself like a fish out of water going, God, I've I spent all these hours in the practice room. I've spent all these hours in all of these classes. I've got my bachelor's degree and was going for my master's degree and, and going through all of that stuff. And, and here I was feeling like I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't even love what I do anymore. What am I going to do? And I was scared to death. And I had no idea that God was working all behind the scenes. I couldn't even see it. I didn't even want to know it. I was completely clueless in Seattle. <laughs> I had no idea of what his plan for my life was. All I knew is that I wanted to do his will and I wanted to do it his way. And I didn't know how to do it. And the best thing to do in times like that is to just surrender. Just surrender. Just surrender. And just say, Lord, I don't know how to get from point A to point B. I still don't, by the way. I, I I gave him my heart. I gave him my life, and you did too. And maybe you're wondering, where do I go from here? Just trust him and serve him. Continue to serve him. Continue to pray, and he'll open up opportunities. He has a way of getting you on the path that he wants you to be. But you got to be moving. You can't just be stagnant, staying in one place. You got to keep moving. Or maybe I don't want to be a disciple because I'm scared of what God might do with me. Or maybe I just don't trust him. But there's a cost to being a disciple, and part of that is trust. And it requires faith. Not in yourselves. It doesn't require faith in faith. (laughs) It's a faith in Christ. That's what I need. And I must trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Isn't that the exhortation in Proverbs 3? with all your heart, leaning not into my own understanding, oops, but in all my ways acknowledge him for he will direct, he shall, he will, he will, he shall direct my steps. I love that. It's not up to me to, f- to get to point A, from point A to point B. God does that and I believe that. And the more I released my life into his hands and the more I stopped struggling and striving, the quicker he was able to do it but when I was wrestling and fighting and trying to make things happen and not knowing the worst that got. So I would encourage you, if you're in that place today of being a disciple and you're wondering what to do and how to do it, just relax. It may take some time, but guess what? God's not worried about time. But let me warn you, if you're not purposing to be a disciple of Christ, you may be inviting yourself to a life of compromise. If you, if you lived your life like this, what assurance is there? You know, If you don't want to be a disciple, what assurance do you have e- even though you're a believer in Christ? Now, maybe you do have assurance. You should have assurance if you believe in Christ. Don't get me wrong. But there's no great assurance when I'm not walking with him, when I don't want to be a disciple, that, that especially if you're living a life of compromise. There's very little assurance, even though you have the assurance, perhaps. But it's often been said that you are either moving forward or backward in your walk with Christ. There is no neutral. You can't just put yourself in neutral and expect to go forward. You will always go backward, always. You will never go forward by putting yourself in neutral. It is a purposeful thing to follow him. It's purposeful. It's a decision of the heart, it's of the will, and it's love. Because I love Christ, that's what I do. I purpose with all of my heart to follow Him because He first loved me and He gave His self for me. And I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with Him. And so, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. And the best evidence of a soul that is saved is a life that demonstrates it through action, what it purports to believe. If I really believe it, there's going to be some kind of response in my life. Wouldn't you agree? Now, don't come to me and say, well, it's, you know, you're all about works. No, I'm not. You're, you're, you're justified by, by faith and your works, and in that order, by the way. You're justified by faith in Christ and your works. In James, it tells us, but someone will say, James uh, chapter 2, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And he says, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe, (laughs) and they tremble. But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith, notice, faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect or mature. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only." And then he goes on in verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So there ought to be something happening. Gehazi, Elisha's servant, was not a true disciple. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we've been looking at this on Thursday nights, and I would encourage you to come Thursday nights, because we get into the Old Testament, it's part of the Bible, and it's equally as important as the New Testament. So come out on Thursday nights. I'd love to see you. But in 2 Kings 5, um, after God, through Elisha, healed the, the Syrian king's commander of his army, Naaman, remember that Naaman came with all this silver and gold, wanting to give it to Elisha. Elisha heals him. He refuses the gold and the silver, but his servant, Gehazi... Had this problem, and it tells us that Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman, this Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman as Naaman was leaving uh, Elisha's home. And then when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him, and he said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And so Naaman said, Please, take two talents. And he urged him, and he bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments, and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him And when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant didn't go anywhere. Was he telling him the truth? No, he's lying to him. He not only lied to him, but he had such a covetous heart that when his master, Elisha, wasn't willing to receive the money for the healing, which was a good thing because God did that. Elisha was just the instrument. When he refused the silver and the gold, Gehazi says, oh no, I'm going to wait till he gets down the road a little bit and I'm going to run after him and say, hey, uh.'" and then he lied again, didn't he, about these two men coming to Elisha. There weren't two prophets coming to him. Was Elisha, or was Gehazi a a disciple of God? Was he a disciple of Elisha? And Elisha didn't know this. He came to know it. God could have revealed it to him from the very beginning, but he gave Gehazi every opportunity. So then he said to him, Elisha said to Gehazi, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? And therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. So Gehazi may have just been a man with a weakness, and we all have weaknesses. Anybody have a weakness in the room? Raise your hand. I'll be the first to raise my hand. I really like pumpkin pie really bad, especially with the whipped cream. Um, and I like the stuff in the tub that you can just dollop it out and just slap it on there like that. I mean, the other stuff that you spray, that, that's fine, but there's just there's gas and everything in it. I, I'm not, well, anyway. So, but what about uh, uh, in the New Testament? Look at a man named Demas. The Bible talks about a man named Demas. You may not know who this man is, but in Colossians, uh, Paul tells us In his final section of his letter to the Colossians, notice what he says in verse 14. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, I want you to see the progression here because in each of these three different letters that I'm reading to you, you're going to see Paul happy with Demas. Everything seems to be fine. What we just read, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. He's simpatico with Paul. He's there with him. Notice in Philemon, what does he say? Paul now to Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, he calls him a fellow laborer, and now five to seven years passes by, and now Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, says, for I am ready, I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, sounds like a disciple to me, doesn't it, you? Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. And then he says in verse 9, Be diligent to come to me quickly, Timothy, for Demas has forsaken me, loving having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia and Titus for Dalmatia. So it started off really well. And then as time went on, we find out that Demas had a limit. He had a limit to his discipleship. He had a limit in his relationship with Christ. He would go a certain way and no further. But a disciple of Christ is one who's going to be willing to go all the way, even though we're scared and even though we're struggling. Keep going with the Lord. Be his disciple. It'll be the most rich experience you've ever had. I'm willing to bet, if I was a betting man, and I'm not, that Paul at the end of his life said, you know what, I wouldn't have changed anything. Yes, even the beatings, the shipwrecks, the floggings, the the spittings, the hittings, everything that's happened to me, I wouldn't change anything. Even the snake bite on Malta. I wouldn't change any of that. I would take it all and say, gladly I receive it for my king. Wow. And see... I believe Paul's life is there as a stark reminder to us. And it challenges me too. And it's supposed to challenge us. Because wherever we are at in our relationship with Christ, regardless of where our discipleship is with Christ... I believe that I could be closer to him. I could be more sold out for him. I could be more loving than I am. I could be willing to let him do more in my life than I'm currently allowing him. I could be giving him more than I'm giving him right now. And I'm not just talking about money, but my life, my time, my resources. Am I willing to do that? You know, are we a disciple? Or are we like Demas, contented with, the, you know, and loving the things of this world? How far are you willing to go for Jesus' sake? Have we counted the cost of being a disciple? You know, I've heard many people claiming, you know, I'll give my life for Jesus, he gave his life for me. And yet those are the same people that are unwilling to do what Christ asks of them. So if you're unwilling to do what Christ asks of you, how can you say with confidence that you're willing to die for his name? I believe that God gives grace at the moment. I'm probably going to be very surprised if at the point of death, if somebody was putting a gun to my head and said, do you believe in Jesus, what would I say? Seriously, I think that grace like that comes at the moment. I don't think, I, you know, I, I'd like to think that I'd say, oh, I believe in Jesus, let me pull the trigger. You know, I mean, I don't know myself. And I'd probably be willing to say we probably don't know ourselves like God knows us because I found myself under certain circumstances being surprised at what a coward I can be. And I'm just admitting it to you. It's horrible, I hate it. I'm changing. God is changing me and he's changing you. Let's change together, amen? Let's not allow that kind of talk. <laughs> Many are willing to serve Jesus as long as they're the senior pastor or they are willing to serve Jesus as long as they have a position of leadership. But if it's to clean the tables or to clean the bathrooms or serve in the Sunday school, forget it, I'm out of here. And that happens. In churches, It's happened here. I'd like to share with you a young lady. 17-year-old Rachel Joy Scott. She was a student at Columbine High School, and she loved Jesus with all of her heart. She was a disciple of Jesus. But on April 20th, 1999, a young man approached her outside of the school where she was there with a friend, and the young man pointed a gun at her, a rifle, and he asked her if she believed in Jesus. She said yes, and he shot her four times, killing her. And many other students were killed that day, as we all remember, and all of their lives are important, but Rachel made a stand for Jesus. She could have said, no, I don't believe in him. This was a a student who loved Christ, and the man who shot her, the young man who shot her, was a peer of hers. She knew who he was, and perhaps he'd been ridiculing her every day for months on end, saying, you Jesus freak. And yet this young lady, look at how beautiful she is. so impressed with her but the good news is we'll see her again and i'm sure right now she's like i don't i wouldn't want to come back even if i could i'm happy right now I'm in the presence of my savior a disciple to the end she was willing And the Apostle Paul learned a thing or two about the cost of discipleship as well. In fact, many of his letters began with this introduction. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant literally means, uh, the Greek is doulos, and it means someone who has given himself up to another's will who's, uh, see, I say, i got to get these tears out of my eyes. I can't even read my stuff here. One who gives himself up to another's will, whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. It's someone who is devoted to another to the disregard of his own interests. That's what a doulos is. That's what a bond servant is. That was the guy who went to the doorpost and his master put a you know punched through his ear with an awl. That was the person. Paul and his letters, Romans and Philippians and Titus... Paul, a bondservant. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. And Titus 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, God spoke to Ananias concerning Paul, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 10. It says, so remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus to go and to round up all the Christians that were in Damascus and then bring them back before the Sanhedrin and put them in jail, beat them, maybe even kill some of them. On his way, the Lord knocks Paul down, and a bright light, so bright, brighter than the sun, just blows Paul's mind. He falls to the ground. Who are you, Lord? He knew knew instinctively that God was there speaking to him. He trembled What must I do? What must I do? And then God finally comes to Ananias after they bring Paul, you know, lifting him up, and he can't see for three days. And so they bring him into Damascus, and he's in a room, you know, trembling, wondering, am I going to get my sight back? What's happened here? It says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. I like that. Ananias, my servant, my disciple? And how does he respond? I'm here, Lord. What is your bidding? What do you want me to do? (laughs) So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one, not Judas Iscariot, but inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Isn't that interesting? The Lord's setting the whole thing up. I'm sending you because I've already given him a vision that you're going to come and do it. Wow. But you know what? I don't think God is in control at all. Are you kidding? He's in control. He's got, he's, try and play chess with God. The board is all set up and he goes checkmate. And you're going, you haven't even moved your first piece. I do know. You're toast. And no, I'm not going to do the queen's gambit. You know, that's for beginners. No, I'm going I'm to wait. I'm going to pull out the real snafu on you. You, you know, you're not even going to know what's happening. Kasparov, God knows what he's doing. And so I love this, what he says. And he said, Here am I, Lord. So the Lord says, Arise and go. And in a vision, he shall see a man, and it's going to be you. And then, verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Pick somebody else to go do it. But notice he didn't do it. And then the Lord said to him, and this is amazing to me go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul, one of the most intelligent men, scholars think one of the most intelligent men that ever lived. The Lord had to break him down to build him back up again and use him. But Paul, now having been purchased or redeemed by Christ, now he is a servant of God. In fact, in Ephesians 3.1 and Philemon chapter 1, he would no longer say that he was a prisoner of Rome, but he would say, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's the one who put me here because I'm his disciple. And whatever a disciple has to go through to serve my master, I'm going to do it. I don't care if I'm in a cell. And aren't you glad that he was in a cell? Because guess what? We're the beneficiaries of these letters, many of them. He wrote while he was in prison. Paul knew what it was like to be a disciple. He experienced the great heights and also the great valleys. And yes, being a Christian is a wonderful thing because, let me tell you, you're never bored because you're going to have great heights and you're going to have really deep valleys. And it goes like that until the day you die or until the Lord takes you. And that's just wonderful par for the course. That is what it's like. Are you willing to accept that? To experience the great heights, the blessings of seeing somebody come to Christ. Maybe it's your family member, your, your brother or your sister or a good friend of yours coming to Christ and he's doing things in you that you couldn't even believe and so you, you're soaring like an eagle and then the very next couple of days, man, you're down and your nose is right there in the pit and you're just being, felt like you're being dragged for miles through the mud and the mire as the devil just pounds you and God allows it He allows it to build you, to build your character. My character never gets built when things are going well. My character always improves when I am brought through the fire. Always it's through the fire. Always it's through the persecution, the the breaking of my heart several times. The breaking, the breaking, the breaking. What does the Bible say? A broken, a bruised reed he shall not, you know... uh, uh, what is it uh, you know the word you know what i'm talking about <laughs> See you all knew, didn't you because you're such good disciples, but Paul knew what it was like in second Corinthians chapter eleven Paul he says, "Are they Hebrews, so am I? Are they Israelites? so am I? And listen to the catalog of his sufferings that Paul and Jesus was being faithful to Paul because Jesus told them, I'm going to show you, Paul, how many things you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And Paul says, I'm willing because you have saved me and I don't care what it happens. And Paul was sincere and he went to Rome and Nero cut his head off. He was so sincere in his discipleship. He's like, even if it takes my life, I could care less. I'm going to follow him because he saved me. Oh my goodness, that kind of conviction, we need that today and you can have it. I need it. I want it. How many want it? (laughs) I do. I want that conviction. No one can take it away from me. No one. Nobody. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. Yes. In stripes, above measure. Meaning the lashings with the flagellum. Yes in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. He died a few times and came back to life. Go figure. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night in the day I've been in the deep In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, and that is my deep concern for all the churches. Wow. Wow. Don't worry about what God has planned for you as a disciple. See, when we read things like this, we're thinking, I didn't sign up for that. And likely so. I understand that. But persecution, whether it's light or extreme, as in Paul's cases, is God's will for you. Do you know that? (laughs) All those who suffer, who live godly in Christ Jesus, shall suffer persecution just depends on what it is. Thank God we live in a country right now. Don't know how long it's going to be. But thank God we live in a country where we can come to church like this and meet. And there's nobody standing. There's stormtroopers not coming in. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, Paul says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I'll gladly receive. I'll gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in infirmities. Now, Paul wasn't some sadist. He wasn't some wacko and weirdo. No, he was just saying, you know what? If that's what I got to receive in order to be his disciple, then I am willing. And not all times does being a disciple mean these kinds of things, but when we look at the extremes that we see in the Bible and to know that Paul went through these things and even at the end gave his life for Christ, I want to be among that number. Because, folks, whatever I experience here is a short little time. It's a short little thing and then eternity. I would rather like Rachel Joy Scott, that wonderful seventeen young late seventeen year old young lady, I would have rather said, I do believe. Go ahead and pull the trigger. Pull it twice. Make sure you don't miss. I'm going to see Jesus. And this is a hard thing to say, but in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know, when I read this, I am immediately... Plunge right to the depths. Can anybody resonate with that? It pounds me to smithereens. But the invitation is there. Do I really love you, God, or it's just all lip service? I tell you what, it's amazing to me. That's why it's good to keep your heart open And, and don't worry about what God might do with your life, just follow Him. Not everybody goes through these difficulties. Not all of us are going to have a curriculum vitae like Paul. (laughs) A listing of all the things that he went through. He who does not take his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Then another, verse 21, another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And the idea behind this was probably once my father dies and I receive the inheritance, then I will come and I will follow you. And this is similar to the man or woman who says, I'll give myself wholly to my job and work overtime now. And once my kids are through college and they get married and they move out and I get my house on the golf course in Naples, Florida, then... I will serve the Lord, but you won't, and you never will. Statistics show that. Why not, and procrastination is a lie in disguise, isn't it? The devil loves when a Christian procrastinates because we put off serving the Lord some other day, some other day, some other day. Well, some other day may not come, and some other day usually doesn't come. Why not serve him now in whatever you're doing and do all those things? Spend time with your family. Spend time serving the Lord with your family. Do whatever you've got to do, but do it together if you have to. Let your life be built on that foundation, right? Instead of getting my nest egg and then worrying about Jesus later. You know, that kind of attitude is wrong. Serve the Lord now. But Jesus said to him, to this young man, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And what is he saying? Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead, but you come and follow me. Luke's account tells us that there was a third man And uh, in verse 61 of Luke 9, it says, And another also said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who were at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit. The idea is well placed or appropriate for the kingdom of God. That's a real hard word, isn't it? But once I go after Christ, don't look back. I remember when I left Xerox, I was afraid. I was at the, the height of my career. I was on the flagship product, and they were sending me all over the country training people on this flagship digital front end. And I was having a lot of fun as a Christian. I was going to places I'd never been, never been out to California, never been to Texas, never been to Nova, you know, uh, uh, St. John, New Brunswick, never been there before. And I'm going to all these different places. And then the Lord to be tugging on my heart. I was sitting right over here one night, and Jeff, Pastor Jeff was sharing in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, I think it's in chapter one, God says to the Israelites, how long are you going to be wandering around this mountain? You've been here long enough. As he said that, the Spirit of God, that was my moment. And then I go into my boss, who's given me all these great opportunities, sent me all over the country to do all this really cool stuff. And I walk into his office, and I say, I'm I'm leaving. He's like, what? I thought you were coming in for a raise. We could give you a raise. I'm like, no. I'm thankful for everything, but you know what? The Lord has called me out, and I must go, and I must serve him. And can I tell you? That was a scary moment. That was a scary moment for me. And I remember driving home on Jefferson Avenue because we worked over in building 801 on Jefferson Road. And I remember driving away that day in tears. I actually had to pull over. It was the most incredible thing because I was scared to death. And yet at the same time, I was filled with so much love. Because I knew God was in it. And he is. And I'm so thankful. I could never deserve it. Many of you have stories like that too, but my encouragement to you is don't wait. If the Lord is nudging you to do something, be his disciple. That means, yes, even giving up a job where you're getting paid really good money and when, I, when Jeff invited me on staff here, there was no talk about money. I do not even know how much I was going to get when I came. I walked in the door and set up my stuff in a, in a little area, and I didn't even know if I was going to get paid. And about two or three weeks later, paychecks came, and they never stopped. And I'm like, God, how great is this? I get to serve you, and you're still going to help me support my family? He's like, yes. And I'm not putting myself up to be anything. I really am not. But I, I'm just saying that, you know, all of us have those roads, those fork in the roads. And where is your fork in the road? Are you at that precipice? Are you at that place where you've got to make a decision? I would encourage you to pray and then jump out, even without a parachute, that's what I felt like I did. I felt like I jumped out of a 747 at 40,000 feet in the air without a parachute and just like, wow! Just a dumb kind of, <laughs> I'm probably going to hit the ground, Lord. He's like, no, I got you covered. <laughs> but what an, a wonderful, exhilarating experience to, to just be in the hand and the care of God. And he will do it. He will do it. I love what John tells us, and we'll end here. In John's first epistle, what does he tell us? He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God does what? Abides forever. I love that, don't you? Now what does it mean, do not love the world? I mean, when we go to... Letchworth Park, and you stand there over the precipice, and you see the falls, or you go to some other place and you see the beauty of things, and you're like, "Wow, I really love this." Is that what he's talking about? No. It's okay to look at beauty of nature, even in its fallen state. It's beautiful, even when the trees are dying all around us and they exhibit color in the leaves. There's such a beauty in the death, isn't there? The leaves are dying, and yet it's the most beautiful time of year. What a paradox but loving the system of the world, loving the ways of the world. That's what he's talking about. I can love and admire the things in the world as far as God's creation, but I don't love the system of the world. I don't like the way the world does things. In fact, the Bible tells me that as a Christian, I ought to be completely different from the world. I ought to be completely different. There ought to be a different timbre about my life there ought to be a different tenor of my, of my, I almost said wife, but life. Something about me, the aroma of my life is quite different than the world. At least I hope it is. It should be. How about you? Now there are many Christians that feel and believe that and they're, they're, they're doing really well. And yet there are others who are, they don't have that. They have no aroma of Christ at all. In fact, they're, they're wondering, because they're so compromised, they don't even know. I don't, they don't have any assurance that they're even saved. And why walk around an existence like that? Make your calling and election sure today. Make it sure. Pray and walk with Christ in your current job and everything that you're doing. Be the very best employee. Be the employee that has the, the, the most... Uh, Uh, accountability the one who does the right thing all the time when the boss says fudge the numbers you say i will not fudge the numbers and you can fire me if you choose to you be the one that has the integrity to not take things when everybody else is taking them stealing the pencils and the office products You be the one to stand up and say, I will not. I am going to be the very best for Christ in my job, everything that I do. And by the way, when you go home, be the very best for your kids and your wife and your family. Be the very best. Don't settle for anything less. Don't allow compromise to eat you like a cancer. You be rid of it. You confess it. You ask God to forgive you and you walk forward with him and let him do it in you. Can we do that? I want to do that. I want to be that man. It says, Lord, like Paul, I'll follow you right to the end. If they pull out a guillotine, then so be it. Make sure it's sharp, because I don't want to have to have them hit me twice. Do it. I want to encourage you that the Lord loves you right now, wherever you're at. This message is hard. (laughs) It's hard for me too because there are things that I share with you today that are hitting me right in the dead center of my heart and I am no different than you. But I've got to ask myself some questions and i got to be honest with the Lord and i got to be honest with myself and say, Lord, do I love the world more than I love you? Am I willing, am I willing to do whatever you want me to do? And then, Lord, if, the, if, if I answer in the affirmative, then let me surrender now. And that's all you have to do. Surrender. Do you know that's the battle? The battle is not actually having the Lord get you to do what he may want you to do or whatever. He, he, would, he just wants to be with you. He loves you and wants to be with you more than what you can do for him. That's the real main thing is just to be with him. But after being with him, the natural response is, I want to go out and serve you now. That's a, that's a normal response. That's a reasonable service. But don't misunderstand. The Lord loves each one of us and one of you today right where you're at. He's not mad at you. He's not angry with you. Does he want to bring us closer? Absolutely. Do you feel a little conviction? Yes, I feel a little conviction because I'm reading these things and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh Lord, I wish I was closer than what I'm reading right now." And often a pastor has to teach way beyond his own experience, and here we are. <laughs> I'm doing the same thing. But that is true. If all that he has done for me, if I want to be willing. I want to be willing. Do you want to be willing? Let's stand together. Oh, the Lord loves. He loves you. Never let your flesh or the devil or anybody else tell you that you've got to somehow, you know, work this out in your own strength. You, you might as well give up. Don't try to work it out in your own strength. Just simply, simply, and, and I mean that in every facet of the word, very simply, just surrender. And even say it audibly to the Lord, Lord, I surrender. I don't know how to get from here to there or wherever it is that you want me to be, but I just I surrender now and I trust you to do the work. If you can do that, then the battle is over, folks. The biggest part of the battle is the will. He causes us first to will and then to do of his good pleasure, whatever that may be, just to serve him, to love him, to be with him. Father, we just thank you for this time, and Lord, myself, and I know my brothers and sisters, Lord, they're feeling very convicted, very challenged, perhaps, by what we have read. And Lord, I pray that we would not um, ever think that somehow, Lord, that we could earn your favor. We can't. You've given us your favor already because we are in Christ. But Lord, as, a, as, a, as the response to what you've already done, Lord, help us then to go and to surrender our lives to you in whatever way you want, Lord. We belong to you. We are a purchased people. That means that if I'm purchased, you have the right and to do with me whatever it is that you want to do. And Lord, I'm okay with that. I may not uh, feel comfortable with it right now, but I know once I'm in it, I'm going to be feeling really comfortable. And Lord, I can say that for assurance with my own self. There's no way I would have wanted to be doing what I'm doing right now, Lord. I had a different plan, but Lord, you all of a sudden, things change. Heart changes. Life changes, so thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that you do that in the life of my brothers and sisters, too. And many, you're doing it and you have done it, or you're yet to do it, Father. Have your way with us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.